Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thank you for listening. Jose de la Gandara and Rigo Rodriguez are both seasoned psychiatrists here in Southeast Florida. They share an even greater background. Both of them were born in Cuba, and they, as children, left with their families to come to the United States. This interview is being done a few weeks after Castro died, which has produced, understandably, a wide range of responses to his death and the nature and legacy of his political tenure. So these two gentlemen graciously agreed to talk about this, both as having a first-hand interaction with this part of history and from their own individual and professional perspectives. To both of you, welcome. Give us a little bit of some of the memories that come to you when you think about the process of leaving Cuba. What was it like there? What was it like coming here? The transitional stuff. Let's just start with Rigo. Thank you for the invitation, uh, Abby. Pleasure to be here. It's years uh, full of memories, of course. You know, I remembered my family really struggling to complete the the process to leave the island. You know, my father had been a political uh, prisoner, both during the Batista government in the 1950s. And again, briefly, during the Bay of Pigs, he was picked up at home and put under, placed under arrest, like many other known opponents of the Castro government at the time. So they really pretty much made his life miserable in the sense that he was dismissed for, from the job that he had and unable to, to make a living. So we were pretty much a pariahs in our own countries. And because of the decision made by the U.S. government to welcome humans in the mid-1960s, we were able to apply to come to the, to the U.S. under a parole program. I was 13 years old at the time, and we were able to leave the island as a household of six, you know, four children and both of my parents. This occurred in the end of 1966. So we face incredible barriers, you know, language barriers when we arrive here, as well as financial barriers, not having any assets, uh, monies. We were not able to speak the uh, language, of course, none of us did. We left behind friends and family. Most of my family stayed behind. I had one aunt, an aunt in New York, but that was about it, uh, no one else. Over the years, many other family members were able to leave the island, but we basically left everyone. My grandparents, many uncles and aunts, I have lucky to have a very large family. And an older brother, unfortunately, could not come. He stayed behind because he was of military age and was not allowed to leave the island until about 28 years later. So we did have family reunions when he was 42 years old. Interesting. Jose? Well, basically, I was a little bit older than Enrico when I left, and I was an only child, and I came by myself. I actually left as a result of pressure from my parents, concerned about my political beliefs in the country, uh, with obvious increase in dictatorial tendencies and religious intolerance. I was detained with two other Catholic youth members and charged with terrorism for allegedly setting up a bomb in a movie theater, which was not true. It was a miracle that I was able to get out of that one because one of the guys that, that was detained with me, his father had a connection with one of the high members of the Castro regime, and he was able to get him to release us. So that was practically a miracle because those things didn't happen at that time. You know, once you were charged with something, whether you were really, whether you had done it or not, they would go ahead and process you and just to, to show the rest of the people what may happen if somebody opposed the regime. So that is what, what motivated me leaving the country. 
I was somewhat idealistic at the time. I thought that perhaps when I came, I could make a difference. When I got here, I was I saw the reality of the situation because I didn't think that the way that the exile community was organized, they could really present a, a real front to the government at that point. I had an uncle uh, living in the United States. I eventually went to stay with him for a period of time and then eventually left and went to the Midwest, Omaha, where I settled and stayed for many years and rebuilt my life. The piece that just jumps at me is you are both young people, young adults, a child. You watched your dad being politically incarcerated. You were incarcerated. That's something that most of us here in this country today and probably around the world, though, unfortunately, there are sections where these things still happen. How did that affect you? I listened to it and go, what scars were left as psychiatrists? Help us understand what it was like for you to go through these experiences. Yes, it definitely has had an impact, not just on our own family, you know, my family, but the large number of patients that, that I see, you know, here in South Florida, the community where I practice, that have been incarcerated, it's incredible. I would not be exaggerating if I said that I'd, one out of 10, every one of the patients that I see have been incarcerated in Cuba before they left. So the lack of liberties, the, the repression, the ability to practice religion, the large number of individuals that were incarcerated in Cuba in those years definitely had an impact on my, uh, just the way that I, that I train as a psychiatrist. You know, I made sure that I pay attention to abuses of human rights. And over the course of the, of the years, I have been involved in speaking out for people who have been incarcerated in other countries, not just Cuba. So I've been active in this particular area of psychiatrists and have denounced abuses of psychiatrists around the world. I participated in the APA committee years ago. The American Psychiatric Association did have a committee for many years where these cases of abuse were handled. And we pursued these abuses and tried to get these individuals released from, from prison. Dr. De La Ganda also was involved in, in those activities. So it really gave me an opportunity to try to speak out for these individuals who were abused, who were not able to speak for themselves. So I made that part of my career as a, as a, as a psychiatrist. In my opinion, everyone that left the country under these circumstances was traumatized. Just the, the process of leaving the country itself was demeaning to every individual. In my case, I don't know what Rigo's experience was. In my case, I remember that I, I went to the airport in Havana. I think I had a few dollars uh, in my pocket, and I knew that they would take any kind of excess baggage or anything. So we were told that we were allowed to take limited amount of, of clothes and I, I had a watch with me. They took my wallet, they took my watch, and the only thing I was left with was a few dimes that I had in my pocket and they didn't realize I had it. So when I came to the United States, that's all I had, just a couple of changes of clothes and that was it. I think that that, and the way we were treated at the airport. By the uh, Cubans. By the Cubans. The way that we were treated even in the process of trying to get the paperwork to leave the country, which took about three months, was a very demeaning treatment on the part of, of the uh, 
Cuban authorities at the time. So I assume that almost everyone else that left under those circumstances really has some trauma resulting from that and from the many years that have gone by where we have seen either relatives or friends, some of them killed, some of them mistreated and put in jail and so forth. So it is a traumatic experience for all of us. And I assume that 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 is not exclusive of Cubans. Like Rigo said, there are so many other oppressive regimes in the world and so many people that have to seek refuge outside of their countries. So how long did it take, once you were here, to integrate yourself to the American community? Or when you came over here, were you somewhat in a bubble? Were you somewhat with only Cubans? And so you really continued, I'm going to use the word separation, and I don't mean it in a negative way, but were you separate from the larger American culture for a while and then had to evolve into it? Because the both of you, if you look at it objectively, you've done very well. You went to medical school. You became professionals. You have very solid practices. You've done well. How do we help other people going through that? And what was it like for you as you went through that process? Does my question make sense? My family came, arrived in Miami, and within a matter of uh, days, we were relocated to New York City. So I really did not spend much time in South Florida. As a child, I mostly uh, grew up in the New York City area. So there were not too many Cubans in that part of you know the country. There were some, you know, growing Cuban community at the time. But basically, I was raised in a mixture of different cultures, many Latin Americans, people from the Caribbean, South America, in a low socioeconomic neighborhood where we uh, resettled. The following day was always better than the day that I was living in. You know, I, it was a process of integration, learning. The work ethic was really important. My father worked pretty much nonstop. You know, he held various jobs, and I, and I helped him along the way, doing all kinds of a menial jobs, whatever we could find, from painting, cleaning. The goal was really to complete the education. I look back, and within 10 years of our arrival, I was already you know, in college in my mid-20s. A lot of hard work was involved, and I thank my father's motivation and drive to allow us to have this opportunity that we have been given. I think we're very lucky. And what I'd like to say to everyone that comes to this country is that Really, it's a blessing to be here, and it is an incredible opportunity to be able to practice your uh, religion and pursue what you want to do. And with hard work, it can be done. Jose? When I first came, like I said, you know, I went to my uncle's house. Initially, I worked for a limited amount of time, and eventually I got married and moved to Omaha, Nebraska. My goal at that point was I knew that I wanted to go to medical school. I was told, I didn't know where Omaha was. I was told that there were two medical schools there, and I said, that's where I want to go. So it was facilitated by the Catholic Relief Service to go there, and I spent the next 17 years of my life there. I was unable to to go to school in one of one of those universities. I did have a job at Creighton University as a medical technologist, and that kind of set my life in a sense that eventually I set up a clinical laboratory with another friend. Eventually, sold that laboratory, and with the money from that, I was able to go to school in Mexico. 
Now, I have to, to say this, though. Success is, is a relative condition. While many of us have achieved uh, some success in our private life, there is a sadness in our hearts that cannot be cured with material accomplishment. Losing your country of birth, your friends, your dreams in life as a result of the imposition of a despot who steals so many years of your life cannot ever be satisfied with the success that you may achieve as, as an alternate goal in life. Is it an anger? There is some anger. Unquestionably, there will be some anger left there. It's, it's interesting, and this is from just what I've read, that so I am told that the Cuban medical system has really grown and it's gotten a lot of respect. Now, this is what I'm told. So there are two things. One, to the best of your knowledge, is it as good as what I've read? And secondly, if it is, isn't it interesting that the two of you are very fine physicians but you couldn't do it at home. I think if we would have been there, we would have practiced there the same as we do here. But basically, I think it's a myth that the, the Cuban medical system has become so great as a result of the revolution. The Cuban medical system was good to begin with. Just keep in mind that, for instance, it was professors from the University of Havana who helped set up a medical school at the University of Miami. Many of them did. So that shows you the quality of the medical, of the profession in Cuba to begin with. Since then, the Cuban government, instead of exporting goods, has been exporting doctors to different countries who pay the government. And so they utilize the doctors to bring in the dollars that they need to run the country. Yeah, I think Cuba was ahead in many ways in health. Health and education is one of, one of the two ways that Cuba was in pretty good shape before Castro uh, took over, you know, late 1950s, ahead of many countries. So I would say that the Cuban dictatorship pretty much got a pretty good start when it comes to health and, and education to, to begin with. I do, I think it is a myth that the health system is as great as they claim that it is. Hospitals are pretty ill-equipped. Uh, there is a tremendous uh, lack of medicines, antibiotics. You have to get them in the black market. It, things are very hard to obtain. Here in South Florida, we end up, the Cuban population ends up sending billions of dollars a year in assistance. A lot of it is medical supplies for families and, and sometimes people that we don't even know. We end up sending medication and we feel pretty good about that. Of course, we can help. But to say that they have a great healthcare system is it's a fallacy. Those statistics are really hard to verify anyway. The government goes out of their way to manipulate those statistics and tell the world that they have best health care. But it isn't so. They do train large number of physicians that they rent to other governments. Yeah, in a way, Cuba right now in some places may have a shortage of physicians because they're out working in other parts of the world for a fee that the government charges and keeps, and very little of it goes to the physician or to their families. When you look back at your combined years, and people are all the time having to leave their homelands, what advice do you have for them? I really think that the most important thing is to keep the family unit together, because not, not only just the immediate family, but the extended family as well because that stabilizes the individuals as they try to integrate themselves into a different society. That, I think, in, in my opinion, is probably the best, the most important thing that can be done.
This is 50 years uh, later, and you know, my family has been divided. We still keep in touch. We try to we try to stay together. We faced as tremendous challenges in terms of keeping in touch. Mail technology over the year has changed. It has improved. There is some degree of visitation now that we are able to see. Uh, some of my family members have been able to come, stay, or, or visit. But it's very very difficult when you have a government anywhere in the world that doesn't allow you to to stay together as a family uh, unit and does everything possible to divide the family from a religious or economic point of view. One of the things that I've had to deal with with my patient and some of my family who immigrated from years ago, but um, that's a long time ago, they're not alive any longer, was the question of why. And I've always pictured, I cringe with the idea of, and now I can take your stories and use that to put life to the stories, is a kid comes home and says, mom, I don't understand why we're bad here. I don't know what's wrong. We Dad works. We try to have a good house. We go to our religious organizations. Why are we suddenly bad? How do you deal with that feeling? And was that part of your process as well? You were kicked out, basically. And for what reason? What did you do that was so bad? Your thoughts? Back in Cuba in those days, you know, my father was essentially persecuted. I knew that. You know, I was old enough to look around, and we had tremendous uh, limitations as to uh, what we could do. My father, you know, would get arrested, put away for preventive uh, reasons. He hadn't really done anything at all to deserve a, a jail sentence. Interesting term, preventive incarceration. Yes, yes, that's what the well, that's what dictatorships do. Their own uh, will. That happens. That happens in Cuba, and I'm sure it happens in other many other countries as well. But in terms of education for example, I recall not participating in, at the time, my family, uh, for a while, I did not even go to school in Cuba. My father did not did not want me to be indoctrinated with the communist and Marxist uh, lectures, and I basically was not sent to, to school. But, you know, of course, I came to, to an end uh, pretty quickly. And the educational options, possibility, if you are not participating in government activities in Cuba, you will be prevented from pursuing certain careers, such as medicine or engineering. They will have you pursue an education that they want you to do only if you align yourself with communist uh, beliefs. So education was limited. And travel opportunities, of course, you know, you are not allowed to leave the islands. A criminal offense if you attempt to leave the island in any way. So I did see as a child people arrested and sent away to prison only because they wanted to exercise a universal right, which is to travel. And, of course, there was a religious prosecution as well. Churches were, were closed. Religion was not a topic to be discussed in the school and many other limitations that I observed as, as a child. I concur with everything that Rigo is saying. When you live in a, in a in a free society, in a democratic country, which may not be perfect, but is the most perfect of all the systems in existence on Earth this day, it is difficult to realize the difficulties that people go through on a system where human rights are not respected in any way, where the government imposes their will on the people, to the extent that they don't even have individual property 
or anything that they can really say is theirs. One of the issues that people had to face when they left the country was that they had to give the government everything they had, including their house, their furniture, their clothes that they had there. Everything became the property of the government in order for them to be allowed to leave. So that should give you an idea. Gave up everything in order for you to leave. Absolutely. To those of us who, me in particular, because I've never experienced these types of things, but I certainly have read about them, and I know that my own family has been through similar things, it's a sad commentary on the human experience that these things still occur. One of the things that I'm hoping will come from those who listen to this is to understand that, sadly, it may still occur, but we have to work around it. We have to do what we can to prevent it. And when it happens, we can't let it destroy us. And I think both of you are prime examples. Bless you both. You did it. Good stuff. Jose de la Gandara and Rigo Rodriguez are both psychiatrists here in Southeast Florida. They've been kind enough to take us on a bit of a tour of their life and what they've done, what they've gone through, their immigration from Cuba. It's been fascinating in just listening to them. There's a great deal of energy that needs to be obtained from it and a great deal of understanding that we all need to spend some time doing. Gentlemen, thank you both very much.